0: Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, this week we'll be looking at a very promising strategy to increase high school and college graduation rates by counterintuitively having students attend high school and college at the same time. And we'll also talk about a rather
1: remarkable few days at a california high school as students demanded more from their school to control sexual harassment and to create what they call a safe space for
0: learning but first let's talk about a big push that's underway in california right now to increase graduation rates at its colleges and universities especially at community colleges one promising strategy that's emerged is encouraging dual enrollment in high school and college classes, especially for students who are not necessarily college-bound. There's compelling research that shows that students who participate in these programs are more likely to graduate. Dual enrollment is the arrangement in which
1: high school students take college courses either at their local community college or community colleges come to their high schools to teach the courses. Usually the courses provide credit for both toward a high school diploma as well as towards a community college certificate or maybe even an associate degree.
0: Well, it turns out that California for quite a long time lagged the rest of the country, at least compared to many other states, in terms of the number of students participating in these dual enrollment programs. But it's grown significantly in the last few years. UC Davis Professor of Education Michael Kurlander was able to assemble accurate data for the first time that shows about one in eight seniors in California has taken at least one community college course while in high school. That's good, but it still could be a lot more. And, you know, you and I
1: hosted a webinar this week on a topic, and I found it a really interesting and informative hour. I learned a lot from the hour, and for listeners who want to link to listen to it themselves, it's on our website. To continue with the discussion, we've invited back one of the panelists from the webinar, Leslie Shue Freeman from Oakland Unified, because we were impressed with the inroads that Oakland has made in just a few years with dual enrollment. Leslie is the district's manager of dual enrollment. Welcome, Leslie.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: So describe what your dual enrollment program looks like, who it serves, and how you were able to get so many students involved in it.
2: We launched our program in the fall of 2015, and we started small with just a handful of high schools, about four, and we're currently across nearly all of our high schools. We serve about a 1,000 students per semester across our 15 high schools, and it's a blend of courses. So it's career ed or CTE type courses or general ed courses.
1: CTE is the?
2: CTE is career tech education, and those courses typically are aligned with our career academies and pathways, which we have across all of our high schools.
1: So you have some flexibility in terms of what you can offer, but all of your courses are taught by college instructors from where?
2: That's right. Our college courses are taught by Peralta faculty from the four Peralta colleges, and they push into the high schools. Most of our courses are taught uh, during a student school day, taught by the Peralta faculty. And these courses are completely free of cost to the student. The school picks up the bill for books and supplies, and the colleges have completely waived other fees.
0: I mean, the goal of this program, as I understand it, is to reach students who wouldn't normally have gone to college, weren't sort of on a pathway to college. Wouldn't these courses be like really challenging for these students? It seems almost counterintuitive that you would have students who might not have gone to college taking college courses in high school.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But our students are actually choosing to take on this challenge of taking on a rigorous college course. So our students aren't forced to take the class Uh, We work closely with our high schools um, to request courses that are aligned with student interest as well as their pathways. And students are, you know, they usually have conversations with their counselors and with adults at the high school who share information about the courses and also what it means to be in a college course. And so students are making informed decisions about whether or not they wanna take on the challenge of being in a college course.
1: Most students pass, right? Uh...
2: Yeah, we have very high pass rates on average. 82% of our students pass with a C or, or, or a P or higher.
1: And so these students get credit for a high school course and That's they right. get credit for a community college course.
2: Yes, students are getting both high school and college credit. Um, oftentimes our courses are also A to G approved through the UCCSU CSU system. Um, and the courses that students are taking, they get college credit um, that can be applied towards a certificate or maybe an associate's degree at the community college. And oftentimes our courses are also transferable to the UC and CSU system. In other words, this is one less course that students then have to take that may be part of their general ed requirements or even a major requirement once they're at a four-year college.
0: So, Leslie, you're, you're telling us that the students do well in these classes, that there's demand for it. Yes. What accounts for this program having these positive results?
2: I think that one of the key reasons why dual enrollment is so successful is that they're being exposed to a college course in the safety of high school. So they're amongst their peers, They're amongst adults who know them fairly well, and they're being exposed to a rigorous college course in the safety of high school. And we also ask our high schools to have measures in place to make sure that students have academic support. So there's actually a high school teacher who supports students in the classes on off days, for instance. We don't ask professors to change their instruction because this is the kind of exposure they're going to be having once they're in college. We don't want it to be watered down. We don't want it to be easier. We really want them to be having an authentic experience. So if, you know, college can sometimes feel very daunting for first-generation, low-income students of color. And dual enrollment is bringing that daunting experience in in a small way to high school in, in a safe place where they they can kind of try it out.
1: You've been successful, obviously, in Oakland Unified, but only about one in five schools in the state has dual enrollment. What could the state do to help districts, other districts that don't have it, what could the state do to make it easier for them?
2: You know, I was really happy to see that there was a recent announcement from the governor to uh, release $5 million to support the books and supplies for dual enrollment. And while $5 million is great, it's just not enough. It's really a drop in the bucket as far as what it's going to take to really support school districts and community colleges.
0: While we've been talking this concept of growth mindset came up uh, that Carol Dweck at Stanford really pioneered, giving students a notion that they can succeed as opposed to, oh, I can't do that. This does seem to allow, give students that sense that, yes, I could do this. Isn't that central to this approach?
2: It is very central to this approach. And I think that we are responsible for giving our students these sort of challenges and then providing also the scaffolds of support to make sure that when they come across the question of I can't do this or can I do this or this is really hard that there's an adult by their side or there's a peer by their side saying, I'll share my notes or no, this is how I did it. And they're sharing these sort of strategies to be successful in college. And you're that much more ready once you're kind of launched into a totally new foreign environment We're getting some of that anecdotal data already of students reporting back, I'm this much more confident, or I learned this concept in a dual enrollment class that I already knew and so I was able to confidently raise my hand in a huge lecture hall at UC Berkeley of 700 kids you know they're able to gain those those actual academic skills critical thinking etc this is all reported on our student survey of students saying i walked away after taking one dual enrollment class with these concrete academic skills but it's also for first generation low income students of color where they are going to be a minority on a campus, more often than not, there'll be a minority on, on a large college campus, they're going to feel like they can do this.
0: Well, thank you so much. We've been talking with Leslie Sue Freeman. She manages the dual enrollment program at Oakland Unified. Sounds like the program is going amazingly well. And it's great to hear about the work that's going on in the school so much of what we hear from Oakland of budget problems and so on. But you are working with kids on a daily basis and lots of kids are succeeding.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, John. You know, the $5 million that Leslie Freeman referred to, that's $5 million that Governor Newsom is proposing to be in California's budget during the coming year to cover the cost of textbooks. Under the current law, school districts are required to cover the cost of those college textbooks. Many districts can't do it because, it's, as, as you know, college textbooks are pretty expensive. So this is buried in Governor Newsom's budget, but actually there's a feeling that this will make quite a difference and might lead other school districts to provide the program.
1: That certainly has been one of the obstacles, but during our webinar, Superintendent Darren Brawley from Compton Unified mentioned another one, which is that each district has to negotiate with the local community college. That's the only one it can deal with, and a number of districts would say, there are other community colleges around here. We would like to have partnerships with them, but under the current law, you can't you're
0: really limited to that. And I think it's proving to be one of the barriers. Because there's more options. Courses which some colleges might not be able to provide, don't have the instructors so to, to give school districts more options, not to just not to be limited to working with the one particular college. So um, that's something maybe the legislature will pick up. I think there's a state role here with regard to dual enrollment. Right now, it's
1: under local control. The district has to negotiate with its local district. And I think the state could play a
0: role in clarifying a lot of these relationships. Well, it's certainly an interesting strategy and a promising one. Very much so.
1: This week, Berkeley High was the scene of some remarkable protests you know, in Berkeley, that's probably hardly news, but this protest was about sexual harassment on a scale never seen before at Berkeley and perhaps at any high school in California.
0: Well, John, it was pretty remarkable. And just full disclosure, my daughter is at Berkeley High School, so uh, and she was involved in the protest, and so I got, did get uh, kind of an inside view of what was happening. And it's pretty complicated, but I think one thing is clear is that most attention around sexual harassment, sexual assault, the focus has been on colleges and universities, much less at high school campuses. That's not to say it's been ignored, but it's a very complicated issue to get to because you're talking about minors, so there's a lot of confidentiality. Students don't know what discipline measures have been taken against offenders. So it's actually a challenge for school districts. What happened at Berkeley is that a student filed suit against the district saying that she had been there had been an attempted sexual assault against her on campus and the district didn't really respond affirmatively, didn't report the assault to the to the local police as required. At about the same time that news about this lawsuit surfaced, the names of several boys appeared in black marker in a girls bathroom with the warning boys to watch out for and also saying support each other always and add names if you want. This then triggered massive protests. The students left classes. They had an all-day sit-in, actually reminiscent of what happened in the 60s. It was another sit-in at Berkeley High, where for an entire day, students gave testimony, both girls and boys, about sexual harassment, sexual assault, not only related to the campus, but in their own past, and so on. Yeah, But it's not as if Berkeley High had ignored or has ignored the
1: policies, right? It is, it is separate from this one incident you talked about. It's been very active
0: in this issue, hasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, um, what happened was that the next day, the students marched to the district headquarters and had a pretty emotional confrontation, discussion with the superintendent. And uh, the superintendent then did send out a notice to all the entire school community, listing all the things that they had done. I mean, there's been violence prevention education starting in the ninth grade. They brought in a a sexual harassment education program, peer-to-peer education program called Green Dot. They had added investigators in the district's complaints office and so on. But the superintendent acknowledged that they needed to do more. So what do you think happens next? All this has happened this week. And uh, I have to say, I mean, this has been very tough for everybody, for the administrators, for the students, because this is Berkeley. I mean, a very progressive community. And so um, the notion that Berkeley... You know, students would feel that the campus was not a safe place. I think is very painful for people. One of the complications is a lot of the incidents that the students are talking about occurred off campus at parties. The school feels that they are very limited. They can't like expel a kid for something that happened off campus, but then the students have to put up with students who they feel have offended against them. It is complicated and you know,
1: sometimes we dismiss Berkeley as being Berkeley, but it's really important and I'm really glad that the students are raising this issue and now it will raise it for other high schools as well because we all know going through high school what bunch of jerks we boys can be in as adolescents in high school. So it's really, really a good issue to raise.
0: So the district now is going to, starting this week, bringing in outside experts and to really respond to some of the specific complaints reports that came up just this week. I mean, the things that they had not heard about. Also, to begin making classroom presentations, particularly in the 10th to 12th grade, because this, the district does do a lot of this education in the 9th grade, but you have to keep going. Right. So this is still very much a live matter. It comes in the context of the Me Too movement nationally. So obviously, there's heightened sensitivity, but what is very clear is that more work needs to be done amongst this youth population.
1: Lewis, I'm sure we're going to follow this issue because it's not going to go away.
0: No, John, I think there's still a lot of work to be done. And the thing that's impressed me was really how both sides have responded. Students have been serious about this and uh, on a very difficult issue. and, And the administration is trying to grapple with it. And I think whatever Berkeley does, does provide lessons for what other school districts could or should be doing going forward. that wraps it up for this week's podcast thanks to our sponsors the sd bechtel jr foundation and the bill and melinda gates foundation our producer this week is shuka kalantari welcome back shuka our music is from nate schwartz jazz orchestra and its sources owned justin allen please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts i'm lewis friedberg and i'm john fensterwald thanks for listening we'll be back next week